This time of year, many Christians and non-Christians alike are in a very festive mood, aren't they? They've got their lights out there and their decorations all set as they prepare to celebrate what the world calls Christmas. Few will even celebrate what they consider to be the birth of their Savior. Most just want to give and get gifts, have a nice time with friends and family, have nice parties. They look forward to that. And amazingly, few will even ask the most fundamental questions that should come to mind about Jesus. Was he the Messiah? How do you know? In the churches of God, we know that Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. But these questions still need to be answered for us, too, because ultimately we're staking everything on the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. So my question for you today is, how sure are you that Jesus was the Messiah? Well, first, we can verify a few things. Let me get this on. From outside sources. This is a quote from Flavius Josephus. Josephus lived around 37 to 100 A.D., He was a Roman Jewish citizen, and he wrote the book called The Antiquities of the Jews, wrote it around 93 A.D. Jesus is mentioned twice there. One quote directly concerning Jesus has come to be known as the Testimonium Flavianum. About the time, it says, about this time came Jesus, a wise man, if indeed it is appropriate to call him a man, for he was a performer of paradoxical feats, a teacher of people who accept at the unusual with pleasure. And he won over many of the Jews and also many Greeks. He was the Christ. When Pilate, upon the accusation the first, uh, of the first men among us, meaning the chief priests and the, uh, the leadership there, uh, condemned him to be crucified, those who had formerly loved him did not cease to follow him, for he appeared to them on the third day, living again as the divine prophets foretold, along with a myriad of other marvelous things concerning him. And the tribe of the Christians, so named after him, has not disappeared to this day. The second very brief mention was that Josephus calls James the brother of Jesus, who was, also, who was called the Christ. Next, we come to a uh, Roman historian by the name of Tacitus. Now, Tacitus uh, was around, around 56 to 117 A.D., and he wrote a book called The Annals. And in The Annals, he uh, says this, Nero fastened the guilt of starting the blaze, meaning Rome was burned to the, a large section, about 80% of Rome was burned to the ground, starting the blaze, and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians or Christians by the populace. Christus, for whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius, 14 through 37, uh, A.D., and at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. This is a lot of corroboration of the scripture, isn't it? 
and, and the a most chievous superstition thus checked for the moment again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Next, we have a quote by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. He lived around 69 to 140 A.D., and he wrote a book called The Lives of the Twelve Caesars. Here we have a quote from that. It says, As the Jews were making the constant disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he, that is Emperor Claudius, who was around uh, 50 A.D., expelled them from Rome. And you can compare this to Acts 18, verses 1 through 2. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, and who had recently come to, uh, from Italy with his wife Priscilla. These would be two very key members of the church. Because Claudius had ordered all of the Jews to leave Rome. Again, nicely that Secular history is confirming exactly what we see in, in God's word. Next, we see a quote by Lucian. Now, Lucian was a second century Romano-Syrian writer. Here he, he, we have a quote from him. It says, the Christians you know worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified, you know, those novel rites, every time someone sees you leaving the driveway on Sabbath. So where are they going to church? That's a novel rite. And was crucified at that account. You see, these misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for a time, for all time, which explains their contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion, which are so common among them, and it was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers from the moment they are that they are converted and deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. There's even a mention in the Babylonian Talmud. Now, the Talmud was written up over a period of almost 100 years, over 100 years, from 70 AD to 200 AD. And it records this. It says, It is taught... On the eve of the Passover, they hung Yeshua, and the crier went forth for 40 days beforehand, declaring that Yeshua is going to be stoned for practicing witchcraft, for enticing and leading Israel astray. Anyone who knows something to clear him should come forth and exonerate him. But no one had anything exonerating him, for they hung him on the, uh, hung him on the eve of the Passover. So we see there is an overwhelming consensus among historical scholars both biblical and non-biblical, that Christian and non-Christian, conservative and liberals, doesn't matter what the spectrum is, that this first century figure known as Jesus of Nazareth really did live. For example, the late English scholar Michael Grant writes this. Whoops. If we apply to the New Testament as we should, the same sort of criteria as we should apply to other ancient writings containing historical material, we can no more reject Jesus' existence than we can reject the existence of a mass of pagan personages whose reality as historical figures is never questioned. To Grant's point, there is as much historical evidence for Jesus Christ as there is for Boudicca, the warrior queen of the Britons, Attila the Hun, 
Tamerlane or Genghis Khan. But we take them for granted in history, don't we? But for Christians, additional proof of Jesus as Christ lies in the pages of the Bible. Of this proof, C.S. Lewis wrote in Christian Reflections, Christians believe that Jesus is, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, because he said so. The other evidence about him has convinced them that he was neither a lunatic nor a quack. Now, during the Cold War, it was very interesting that a spy required six points of authentication in order to be absolutely certain of the identity of someone. So you had to have six layers of authenticity. Without it, your life would be at risk. I had a fascinating read about the Rosenberg trial and that that Soviet spy network that was in place there that stole a lot of plans that eventually led to the death of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg. And it talked about this six layers of identification. You can imagine how hard that was to fool. But what if you had to fulfill eight or maybe 48 identifying characteristics? Or what if those characteristics had been specified up to a millennium before you even were born? Think about that. What if, for instance, the city of your birth had to be known about a thousand years before you were born? What is the mathematical probability of this happening? David Williams, who's a mathematician and a computer systems manager for the mathematics faculty at the University of Newcastle in the United Kingdom, writes this. He says, anyone can make predictions. Having those prophecies fulfilled is vastly different. So we can all make predictions. I predict that next week we might have cold weather. Anyone doubt? See, we are all on the same page. In fact, the more statements made about the future and the more the detail, then the less likely the precise fulfillment will be. So, for example, when a child, when, what's the likelihood of a person predicting today the exact city in which the birth of a future leader would take place well into the 28th century? You don't know the name of the leader. You've never heard anything about him, but yet you're saying he's going to be born oh, a few centuries down the road here. What is the likelihood of that? He says, this is indeed what the prophet Micah did 700 years before Jesus was born. Further, what is the likelihood of predicting the precise manner of death of a, uh, that a new and unknown religious leader would experience a thousand years from now and a manner of death presently unknown to you and would remain unknown for hundred years for hundreds of years yet. And this is what David did a thousand years before Jesus was born. Crucifixion was not common. It was it didn't originate in the Middle East. It was a definitively Roman invention to inflict as much pain as possible for as long as possible. Again, what is the likelihood of predicting the specific date of the appearance of some great leader? Hundreds of years in advance. But this is what Daniel did 530 years before Christ. 
referring to Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel 9. It is possible to contrive prophetic events, he writes, but only if you can control all stages of the process to the outcome. When you add the multiple, multiple identifiers as requirements to be fulfilled, it becomes more complicated to control. But what if you do not have control over the process or the outcome? This is the case of Jesus Christ. So first, how does someone arrange to be born into a specific family? How do you arrange that? Oh, I'm going to be born into the Rockefeller family. Yeah, me and David are like that. Well, the Messiah had to be born of the lineage of Jesse. We see this in Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the, wis- and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And we see this basically fulfilled over here in uh, Luke Luke 3, verse 23. Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 30 years of age, and being, as was supposed, the son of Jesus. That's the caveat, because he was the son of God. (coughs) Pardon me. The son of Haley, and then on down, verse 32, the son of Jesse. And Jesus was the son of Jesse on both his mother and his father's side of the family. So you'll need to say a prayer that I can actually finish. My voice will hold up. Or maybe you won't. Don't want that. It'll be a shorter sermon that way. Second, the Messiah had to be born in a specific city. How do you arrange that ahead of time? And the interesting thing, this is a city that your parents don't actually live in. Oh, we just happened to be driving through, and Jesus was birthed along the way, right? That didn't quite happen that way. The Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. We see that in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, being among the small clans of Judah, out of you will come forth to me that to be a ruler in Israel, whose goings forth and are, from, are from old and from everlasting. We see in in Luke chapter 2, now it happened in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. This is the Roman world. This is a census that's taking place. And this was the first enrollment that was made when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to enroll themselves, everyone to his own city. This is the city of the birth of your ancestors in Israel. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth up in the north into Judea, into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house in the family of David, to enroll himself with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him as his wife, and being pregnant. And it happened that while they were there, that the day had come that she should give birth. And so she brought forth her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in bands of cloth, this swaddling method, that's how you get the child warm and, and, and cuddled and laid him in a feeding trough that is a manger, as we would call it, or a manga, as we were told in the biblical archaeology 
society there. There was we had a German guide. Everything was a manga. We were we were told, you know, do you know about Zeus? And we saw this log, kind of a basalt rock that had a carving indention in it. And and uh, we said, no. He said, it's a manga. Really? What's a manga? It's a manga. So we figured out it was a manger. So that's what mangers look like. They weren't made of wood. It was too uh, too rare in Israel. So you use the basalt rock, carve this little uh, indention in it, and that you had a perfect trough there. So that's where Jesus was laying because there was no room for them in the inn. Now these are merely a few examples. But what about some of the other required fulfillments that were along the, the ray here for Jesus? And these get very specific. We know that Jesus would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. And that price would be given over for a potter's field. We see this in Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. This was a very painful experience for Jesus, the betrayal of Judas, whom I trusted. Judas was the keeper of the purse. He was a man who commanded trust. From Jesus. Zechariah 11 verse 12. Then I said to him, them, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, if not refrain. So they waited out my wages, 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it into the potter. The princely price that they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. We see now how that was fulfilled in Matthew 27. When the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. And Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what's that to us? You did your deed. We paid you. Go away. You see to it. And then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver and said, hypocritically, it is not lawful to put it back into the treasury because it's the price of blood. They paid this money for Jesus' death and hired him as the hitman. And they consulted together and bought with them a potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, the field has been called the field of blood to this day. They must fulfill that which was spoken of by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, and they took 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, and whom they, they the children of Israel, priced, and gave them for a potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now, fourth, this betrayer would die and be replaced by another, has his job given to another person. Psalm 109, verse 6. Set a wicked man over him, and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty, and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. 
We see a comment by Peter here in Acts 1, verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the the number of names was about 120. And said, men and brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled which in which the Holy Spirit spoke up by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He led them right to Jesus and kissed him. He betrayed his master. For he was numbered with us and obtained part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. Very graphic end of Judas. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that this field is called in their own language Akel Dama, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling be, it's the same uh, scripture that we just quoted here. It says, uh, therefore these two men who have accompanied us at this time, the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, this is verse 22, that the day when he was taken up from us, that one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, this is basically how we select men in the ministry today. You, O Lord, know the hearts of all. Show us which of these two men you have chosen to take part in this ministry and the apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. We have a prophecy, too, that Jesus would be lashed. Isaiah 50, verse 66. I gave my back to those who struck me. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes... We are healed. If you're ever anointed for being sick, we remind you of this, that Christ's stripes are for our healing. We see this over in Matthew 27, verse 26. And he released Barabbas to them as his pilot. And when he had said, scourge Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And we see down in, so scourging meant a lashing. That was where you had the expression, the lictor. Gave him his licks. So uh, a horrific beating that he took on our, for our sins. First Peter 2 verse 24. Who himself bore our sins on his body on the tree that we having died to sins might li- live for righteousness by whose stripes you are healed. Again, Jesus would have no control over what the Romans would do. He was totally at their mercy, in a sense. Just like the crucifixion. It wasn't indigenous. Scourging wasn't. You didn't do that in under Israelite law. You notice how God never did anything like that. Stoning was the method of capital punishment, and everyone had to partake in it. Every adult, every everyone who could understand the law would partake in a stoning. So this was something brand new. And yet Jesus submitted to it, but it was something that had been predicted. 
centuries before Jesus was even born. They would cast lots for his garments. Remember that? Jesus had a, a, apparently a, some very nice garments that he had purchased. Psalm 22, verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Over in Matthew 27, 35. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of by the prophet that they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. The level of detail in these next few passages goes into and the inability to control any of the circumstances testimony to the veracity of who Jesus Christ was, the Messiah. He would die of thirst. He would have thirst, not die of thirst, but he would thirst while dying. So he was, you keep in mind, you know, this was not normal uh, because typically a, a person would last for days on a, on a crucifixion. That was the whole point, to make it last as long as possible because you were an enemy of the Roman state. You had committed a treasonous act. Psalm 22, verse 15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. It says that in Psalm 69 that he would be given vinegar and gall. They also, and this is verse 21, they also gave me gall, that is myrrh. And myrrh was a very bitter herb, kind of a woody plant. And they would, that was his food. And you would mix that with wine to do what? To numb the pain. Jesus refused it. He says, they gave me myrrh for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. In Mark 15, verse 23, then they gave me wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. Because Christ did not want to numb the pain. He endured that pain for us, the full measure. His side would be pierced and his body would emit blood and water. Over in Zechariah chapter 12, beginning verse 10, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look upon me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In Psalm 22, verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. This is someone on a crucifixion post, cross, post, whatever you wish. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. This was what Jesus felt on the cross. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. You have brought me into the dust of death, for the dogs have surrounded me, and the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. When you're stretched out like that, you're extended. 
And the only way you can breathe is when you push yourself up to extend yourself so that you, you can catch your breath because your diaphragm very, very quickly loses the ability to, to breathe. And you have to push yourself up. And the minute you can no longer push yourself up on that little stob, you start to suffocate. They look and stare at me. In John 19, verse 34, we see the depiction in the New Testament. But one of the soldiers with the spears pierced his side and forthwith came at there out blood and water. As I stated earlier, the crucifixion described in Psalm 22 was non-existent in the Middle East at that time. So David was given this inspiration by God concerning the Messiah, what he would have to fulfill. Not a bone would be broken of the Messiah, just like the Passover lamb. Exodus 12, verse 46, In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry out any of the flesh outside, nor shall you break any of its bones. John 19, verse 33, But when they came to Jesus, remember the Holy Day is coming on, the first day of unleavened bread. When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who had seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and knows that he is telling the truth, that you may believe this do we believe? Not one of his bones shall be broken. For these were, things were done that the scripture should be filled, that not one of his bones shall be broken. Again, Jesus could not control the likelihood that his legs would be broken. If you were a criminal and you were on the post or on the stake, as the Sabbath was drawing near, the directive was to break the legs of the individual so they could no longer push themselves up and within five minutes you would be dead. Christ was already dead. No need to break his bones. Eleventh, the Messiah's dying words were foretold. In Psalm 22, verse 1, this is a Psalm of David. It says, to the, to the chief musicians set to the deer of the dawn, a psalm of David, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning. And we see this, how it played out in Matthew 22, 27, verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud, loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now think about this. Even if you knew all the prophecies concerning you as a Messiah, would you have the presence of mind at that point in your crucifixion to remember those words? Probably not. Yet Jesus spoke them. The Messiah would die among the malefactors and be buried with the rich men. How could you guarantee this? How could you guarantee this? Isaiah 53, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked 
but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Matthew 27, verse 38. And two robbers were crucified with him, so he made his grave with them, made his death with them. One on the right hand and the other on the left. Then on down to verse 57. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had been quite, become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean uh, linen cloth and he laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. How could you guarantee that? Centuries later. There would be several dead who would rise to life at the, at the resurrection of the Messiah. Isaiah 26, verse 18. We have been with a child... We have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not accomplished any deliverance in the earth, nor have the inhabitants of the world fallen. Your dead shall live. Together with my body, they shall rise to a physical resurrection, unlike Jesus. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Over in Matthew 27, we see these fulfilled. Verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. When behold, the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Can you imagine what the environs of Jerusalem must have been like? There's Uncle Bob. I thought you were dead. Me too. Get me some clothes. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. What a testimony. What a fabulous testimony. As our mathematician Williams pointed out, indeed it may be possible for someone to fake one or two of the Messianic prophecies, prophecies, but it would be impossible for any one person to arrange and fulfill all of these prophecies. Another professor at college uh, is Professor Emeritus of Science at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. Peter Stoner wrote in Science Speaks, this is by Moody Press in 1969, that he and his students calculated the probability of one man fulfilling eight major prophecies concerning this Messiah. The estimates were worked out by 12 different mathematical classes representing some 600 students. So there was a lot of cross-checking. The students carefully weighed all the factors discussing each prophecy at length and examined the various circumstances which might indicate whether the men had conspired together to fulfill a particular policy. The people... Force, force this to happen. They made their estimates conservative enough so that it was finally unanimous agreement, even among the most skeptical students. 
However, Professor Stoner then took the estimates and made them even more conservative. And he encouraged other skeptics and scientists to make their own estimates to see if his conclusions were more than fair. Finally, he submitted his figures for review to a committee of the American Scientific Association. Upon examination, they verified that his calculations were dependable and accurate in regard to the scientific material presented. For example, concerning Micah 5.2, where it states that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, Ephratah, Stoner and his students determined that the average population of Bethlehem from the time of Micah to the present and they divided it by the average population of the earth during the same amount of period. So they concluded something interesting. Bethlehem, the chance of one man being born in Bethlehem was roughly 1 in 280,000. 1 in 280,000. That's 1 in 2.8 times 10 to the 5th power. That's, that's okay. Okay, that's doable, right? Doable. But after examining only eight prophecies, they conservatively estimated that the chance of one man fulfilling all eight prophecies was one in ten to the seventeenth power. To illustrate how large a number one ten to the seventeenth power is, Soner gives this illustration here. If you took ten tickets and placed these tickets in a hat and stir them and asked a blindfolded man to draw one, his chance of getting one the, the right ticket is one in ten, right? <clears throat> now suppose we take ten to the seventeenth silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. Now, Texas is 68,601 square miles. Nice size place. These silver dollars would cover the state two feet deep. Two feet deep. Now, mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over Texas. Blindfold a man and tell him he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up the one silver dollar that you have marked. Because that's the right one. What are the chances of him getting that right? That's the same chance as the and one individual would have of fulfilling all eight of these prophecies. Now what if, let's keep on going, what if there were more than eight prophecies to fulfill? What about 48? Soner used 48. He could have used the 456 signs that were identified by Alfred Edersheim in the life and times of Jesus the Messiah. And he again arrived at a conservative estimate that probably the probability of 48 prophecies being fulfilled by one person is an incredible 10 to the 157th power. That's a lot of zeros. A lot of zeros. It took a lot of time putting those up there, guys. And Stoner gives this illustration using the number of electrons. Electrons. These electrons are very small objects. They're smaller than atoms. It would take 
2.5 times 10 to the 15th power of them laid out side by side to make one inch. Just one inch. Even if we counted 250 electrons each minute and counted day and night, it would take 19 million years to count all the electrons in just one inch. Think about that. As Stoner concludes, <coughs> pardon me, any man who rejects Christ as the Son of God is rejecting a fact proved more absolutely than any other fact in the world. A Cold War spy, I remind you, had to have six levels of authenticity. We just saw that Jesus could have many, many more. Up to 457 or 456 if we use Edersheim's uh, whole fulfillment. I couldn't even begin to get all the zeros on the, the page for that. They'd be so small, they'd be irrelevant. As we look at these facts, the historic mentions of Jesus by non-Christian writers and the fulfilled prophecies, together they constitute a phenomenal amount of proof of the veracity of the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. They should give us confidence in our calling and perhaps something to celebrate every day of the year. <laughs>